Richard Niles. In 2003, I interviewed Dave Weckl, a drummer whose unique talent and fire had won him the induction into the Modern Drummer Hall of Fame of 2000. His performances with Paul Simon, George Benson, Michelle Camillo, Robert Plant, Dave Grusin, Mike Stern, and Anthony Jackson brought him public acclaim. But with his dynamic contribution to the Chick Corea electric band and the acoustic band, 1985 to 1991, Weckl became a jazz icon. In this interview, Weckl discusses his development, the influence of Steve Gadd, playing in complex meters, his sonic concepts, the use of computers, and his work with Chick Corea. He also talked about his albums as a leader and composer, revealing a thinking musician who blends razor-sharp precision with passion. Don't miss the chance to chat with one of the greatest drummers of all time, Dave Weckl. Most of the creation comes from the differences or the specific different qualities of the drum setup in sure. the beginning. So the writing aspect happens from that creative place. Right. Sure. And if the instrument isn't here, it's not yeah. even possible to recreate. Right. So it makes more sense to me to talk about all those things you want to talk about and then and then actually let the people hear the, the actual final product that sounds the way that exactly. I want it to sound and they, they know what it sounds like then. So the Midwest so many really talented great people have come from the midwest and i actually asked gary burton about this and i said gary why you know what is it about and he said well you know the midwest is so boring that's exactly that what i was going to say there ain't shit to do but practice right so that's what you did your whole childhood exactly especially if you're an only child i know a lot of you know only child midwesterners that <laughs> really did well because there was nothing else to do basically if you chose to to pursue something, whether it was music or sports, you usually ended up being pretty good at it because um, you usually ended up finding somebody else that you could do that with that had the same desires and goals and, you know, really put some good outfits together, you know. Again, whether it was music or sports, you could really, like, get into a camaraderie with somebody. And you also had the freedom because there wasn't the pressures of of a, of a difficult urban area or a society to have to conform to as far as noise and all that kind of stuff. It was wide open households and luckily for me I had a, like I said, I was an only kid. I didn't have any sibling competition either so it was, uh, you know, my father was a frustrated amateur piano player who wanted me, not pushed me, but but saw the interest and wanted me to pursue it if I wanted to. So, now, did you start area. from the beginning with teachers, or did you? No, I actually started with guitar first, and uh, and I hated it. And I was like six or seven. I, don't I, blame I you. you know, I was a Michael Nesmith nut. You know, I wanted to wanted the sideburns and hat and all that stuff. You know, when I was eight, six. <laughs> but you know, it, I. I mean, my parents didn't know any better, you know, and, and bad teachers are probably the, the, the main, one of the main reasons why people don't pursue it, you know, because they get bad direction early. And uh, I think that was part of the, maybe the part of the problem with the guitar. The other thing was that it just wasn't a natural thing for me. It didn't feel, it just didn't come naturally, whereas the drums did. Right. Something where I sat down and started beating on box lids and, and that turned into my dad you know, following the the desire and buying me a cheap little kit, and I just put on records, copied, played, came really easy. You figured out how to how to 
work it out. They had a little direction. The kid next door, he, him and his brothers had a band and and rock and roll band, and he just gave me some real basic, you know, set it up this way. You play it this rock beat this yeah, way. You, this, your foot does this. Yeah, foot does that. This kind of. It wasn't yeah. even that. You know, that that was kind of later from like listening and you know really kind of figuring out from the records. But thanks to my father. You know, after I was playing to the, all the rock and roll records and picking it up pretty easily and playing along, because of my dad's interest in jazz and ragtime and, and all that type of stuff and Dixieland and big bands and all that stuff, he turned me on to that aspect and that side of music. So it it inspired me, and then he brought home a Buddy Rich record one day, and it was kind of the beginning of the exactly. end. You know? And how soon before you started studying with a teacher in a more serious kind of fashion? I probably played about four years. My dad bought me a new Gretsch kit, and four free lessons came with the kit. <laughs> Great. That was my first introduction to it, and it was it was good, so I continued, and that was kind of the beginning of the whole teacher-student thing. Now, at some point, you sort of thought, I've got my own approach to this. When you were formulating your concept, what kind of stuff were interested you and what kind of stuff did you want to offer? It really took me a while to get to that place because for me I became aware very early of drummers like Steve Gadd that, that I sort of was trying to model myself after as far as being the in-demand studio guy, you know, that back in my early days and moving to the East Coast and, and but I was in college then and I was in my early 20s and I was still at that point, before I sort of hit the scene, I sort of considered a Gad clone, which was, was good and bad. Any kind of a clone is, a, is not a good thing, you know. Right. So through different studying and, and the realization that, that I can't do that, you know, it, it, I started to bust out of it and experiment with my setup and, and listen to a lot of other different kinds of music, more ethnic things, and, and, and a lot of that was through the necessity of having to learn it by getting in groups like French Toast and Michelle Camillo and and uh, and learning about those rhythms and that kind of thing. So my my drum set had to change. Studying with a, a teacher by the name of Gary Chester who who really spread out the kid and put up a couple different hi hats on each side of the kid and made you know even though I was doing that before I studied with him, his um, a lot of his teaching aspect was you know opened up a lot of different things um, independence wise and and idea wise. So. So I was really in my early 20s when, when I started to sort of, I would say, develop my own sound and my own thing. And sound was a big part of it for me. It always has been, you know, the presentation of, of what it sounds like. Not only the drums, but the, you know, now the entire thing, which is why I mix and produce my own records. So. Right. Well, I'm going to get to that in a minute, but when you say independence... A lot of people think about revolution and, and uh, political stuff, but that's not what you're talking about. So no, of course, us, right. Give an example of what number one that what that means, and number two, how you what kind of exercises you might do to develop that. Well, in in simple terms, it's just four-way coordination because playing the drums really uh, can involve uh, using all four of your limbs, both legs, both hands, um, independently, all at once, and maintaining some sense of. Uh, rhythm, <laughs> that consistent rhythm, hopefully, that feels good and provides a, a consistent pulse through the music. Um, meanwhile, also offering the, the different dynamic and sound contrasts that make everybody different, you know, that goes into the music. So, and I mentioned Gary Chester, the teacher that I had studied with in, in the early 80s. He, um, 
he would incorporate the voice actually as a fifth independent so that you know he would set up ostinatos where the bass drum foot you know the right foot would play a, a repetitive uh, rhythm pattern that would be a, a bass part or something that would be not a not a simple thing either you know a, a syncopated rhythm you know but it would be repetitive be an ostinato pattern that wouldn't change every every measure so that was a constant and then there was another um, part with the right hand that would be considered a a ride part you know that would either be on the ride cymbal or a cowbell or an, or another closed hi hat that would also be a consistent you know, that 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 type of part, you know, along with the bass part. And then you would read something with your left hand. You would read, you know, you read a page of uh, simple snare drum rhythms or whatever, you know, that you could play with one hand. Meanwhile your left foot was keeping quarter notes going. And then you would take the voice and you would you would read it down and you would sing the quarter note, then you would sing the right foot, then you would sing the right hand, then you would sing what you're reading, and then you would turn around and do it left handed. So this obviously was uh, a real conscious practice of dexterity in concentration regarding coordinated independence. And that's, that's what basically allows drummers to do what they do, is having the ability to separate the limbs and, and have certain parts of your body remain on autopilot, if you will, to, to keep the consistency of rhythm happening. So it's it's pretty much a never-ending. Uh, you know, you could take it to as many levels as you want to take it to. Yeah, I've heard it described also as if you multiply the word knack by about a thousand. You know, because you get the knack for doing something that you practice, and then you get the knack for the next level of it, and the next level of it. And it's a very sophisticated thing. Uh, it's a coordination. It's a physical. It's a very physical thing. Basically, it's practicing something. Which, as you know, as a musician, as you, you practice, you practice something until it becomes second nature, and it's just repetitive, 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 repetitive. You know, you just keep doing it over and over until it becomes part of your natural ability that you can then build upon and, and work something else in that becomes natural as well. Well, let, let's move on to what you were talking about before about the sound. Now, that's that's something you've worked on a lot, and and tell us how your thinking on the sound of the drums has developed. I've always listened to drummers that have a very natural sound, and like I said, coming out of the big band era of you know Buddy Rich and and Maynard Ferguson and Stan Kenton and all the all the big bands that the drummers all had very big wide open tuned drums and listening to the rock and roll you know sounds of John Bonham and, and all the other recording drummers at that you know at that time different rock bands and and then um, and then Steve Gadd came along and sort of changed the whole concept of what recorded drum sound was once the sort of disco era happened with all the dead drum sounds and the very precise punchy sounds so when I really, really got into the sound aspect was I would have to give, you know, Steve Gadd that, that credit. And and everybody has heard Steve Gadd, whether you know it or not, you know, because he's, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, he was on everything from Paul Simon to Carly Simon to Lee Rittenauer to Chick Corea. So it was everything that was basically coming out in those days, Gadd was on. And, and his sound was pretty recognizable, especially his snare drum sound. I was in college at the time, and I was really, you know, my early 20s, and I just turned 20 probably when I really start experimenting. My drums, I, I realized that the drums had to get smaller 
in order to produce the sound because you could tune the drum relatively low and it would still retain a high pitch, basically. Whereas if you tune a, a bigger drum lower, it's just going to thud, which is okay for the bigger drums. But you know, the whole idea is to have a you know a spectrum of sound, a range of melodic tones, and uh, so so my drums kept getting smaller, and my first time ended up eventually I went down to an eight inch tom and it was an eight by I don't know six and a half something like that and uh, and with a double ply mylar plastic thick head on the on the top and, and a head on the bottom as well to to retain the tone by itself it was a pretty soft sound it didn't have a lot of sound but you put a microphone on it and the mic loved it because it, it was a very contained full rich tonality that hit and got out of the way immediately and so I started to tune my drums that way. It came out of the GAD thing and then kind of became my own thing because it was a little more open sounding than, than GAD's thing was. I didn't use the, the same heads that he used the, at the time that I was listening to him heavy. It was, you know, he was into the hydraulic heads filled with oil, right. you know, that were a double ply head filled with oil. And Evans was the company that, that made that head. And I was always into the Remo thing that which is another head company that makes double ply heads but they're not filled with any any oil so they're a little thinner and they're more airy and transparent so from that aspect of the sound of the drums then i started to take real interest in in how that sound gets reproduced both live and in the studio you know with microphones and mixing consoles and sound reinforcement live and what it's getting reproduced to in the studio my friend, my partner for a long time in my early records, Jay Oliver, the keyboard player, he and I both had great interest in that, and he, he quite frankly had more of a handle on it than I did and taught me a lot in our early days of basic recording and, and sound characteristics of input-gain ratios and, you know, that type of gain structure, that type of thing. And that became what sounds good to my ear what knob on the mixing console affects the drums in what way and what, what do all those little numbers mean of, of frequencies, you know. And so I just started to study it and and gained a, a pretty good relative frequency pitch of being able to, even now I use it with my band to be able to ascertain problem frequencies in the PA or problem, you know, whatever's going on. I usually get pretty close mm -hmm. within a couple of ticks of the problem. Yeah, then it becomes the art of getting the expression of the music to say what you envision it to say. It's one thing to record a bunch of musicians and say, okay, well, here's each musician playing and here's the outcome. It's another to write the music and have a vision of what it's supposed to sound like in your brain and then actually figure out how to do that from a technical sense. Certainly the uh, Perpetual Motion record is a great example of that. Uh, drummer's albums are often drummer's albums, right? which is like probably one of the most boring things in the world to listen to, whereas that album, I've actually played it a lot on the show in the last series because it's, you know, the tunes are so good and it's musical and although the drums are featured, the drums are playing the music. The drums are integrated within the structure of the compositions, in other words, you're always playing the compositions and there's dynamics, which is the wonderful thing, and there's you have quite a few different sounds that you use on the drums, which is great too, so that it's not always the same sound. I would have probably expected your record to be sort of in some way chick influence, but actually I hear a lot of like weather report echoes and, and also yellow jackets. 
Uh, was that a conscious thing on your part? Well, it's, I mean, there's, there's so much involved because for me, I'm not a keyboard player. Yes. I do play enough keyboards and I've been involved with enough music to know what I like to hear and given enough time, if I had unbridled time of just sitting at a keyboard, yeah, I'll, I'll figure out eventually what I want to say and what I want to do, but it works so much better and faster and more enjoyable for me when I can work with somebody like either a Jay Oliver that we have a, we have a certain thing based on our chemistry of writing. And now with Steve Weingart, also uh, the keyboard player in my yeah. band, is is a whole other chemistry of yeah. of writing. And and quite honestly, it's the place that I'm at in my life right now of of what I want to say with my music and the band. Steve and I have a very closely related and same aspect of of desire as far as composition is concerned, and and we hit it off very well in that arena. So no matter if, if a given tune starts with his idea or if it starts with my idea, and, and most everything that I'm involved with from a writing aspect will, will come from the drum foundation first of what do I want to portray in the feel of this particular rhythm of this particular song. And a lot of the times the drum set, the composition of the drum set, you, the use of adding percussion instruments, having two different sounding bass drums, two different sounding snare drums, four toms and an array of different sounding cymbals that I help design, by the way, which, which also add to the whole sound characteristic and the sound canvas, as you will, have a lot to do with determining where the, where the grooves come from. For example, the opening tune, Perpetual Motion, Double Up, is, is it's called Double Up because the working title was, was called Double Bass Drum because the groove started with both bass drums. I mean, the whole tune is basically both bass drums except for the, the sax solo and um, the solo sections. And it's, it's a groove based on that freight train effect that, that comes with the, with the part that was created with both bass drums. Um, couldn't do that with a normal kit, wouldn't work. It's because the tonalities of both bass drums are different, it creates a whole vibe by itself without anybody else playing. Yeah. My influences, you know, are, there was always this thing, you know, when I was growing up, like East Coast, West Coast, New York, LA. I gravitated towards New York because I dug everything coming out of New York, whereas LA, yeah, it was cool, especially if Gad was on it, but Gad was from New York. <laughs> so I was kind of like, you know, I was into the Brecker Brothers and I was into the, you know, all the, all the stuff coming out of New York was really where my heart was at. So that's where I went when I was young. And that's what I, I grew up in my late teens, early 20s, playing with a lot of those great musicians, you know, that I once I fell into the studio scene in New York, I was actually working with some of you know, those great musicians that I was listening to when I was a kid. So what I'm trying to get at is that Steve... Weingart, for example, and I come out of the same backgrounds because we we like Weather Report, we like Chick, we like Herbie, we like, you know, a lot of that type of stuff. It's kind of like the New York Brecker vibe versus the another thing which which might be considered either smooth jazz, slick or or too white for lack of better terminology you know what i mean that's where we we really hit it off in yeah. that in that aspect because it's uh a lot of the melodies that i hear and that i sing are very easy for steve to grasp 
and he'll come up with different harmonies and yeah, I'll hear something and try to pick it out and find it. And a lot of the times I will sit down in a couple day period and really just get by myself and really come up with drum grooves. I'll throw everything on the computer and when the time comes that I can get the rhythm section together with Tom, my bass player, we'll get together and I'll start with those grooves and we'll just play. And that that's the beginning of a lot of the writing, you know. Sure. Or I'll give him the grooves and let him start some stuff at home and then we get together and we we formulate it together into a song. Yeah. Well, the results are, are great, and Steve's done a tremendous job on the record. Yeah, he's a great musician. Yeah. He's he's uh, he just finished his own record too, called yeah. Lifetimes, Good. which is uh, a nice a nice record. Yeah, he's really a great musician. Yeah. I really, really, you know, because he comes out of a total classical school and very knowledgeable, and he's growing every day. It's, and it's nice because I feel that we're growing together. You know, so it's a it's a nice relationship. As you well know, complex time or what is called complex time signatures often sound rigid and lack fluidity. Mm -hmm. Now, what kind of stuff do you do to make it not sound rigid and to make it actually groove like hell? What kind of things do you do to, to achieve that effect? Well, concerning odd times, which is anything other than, than being straight 4-4, four, four, something symmetrical that you can that you don't feel like you're falling off of a, of a ledge. I mean, I've always had a problem with odd times for the sake of odd times. It just seems like a mathematical equation to me. But I have to give Steve Gadd credit again because cause I learned from him through listening uh, to him very early on that the art of making anything groove, there's a way to do it. And it's basically find the backbeat and find the phrase that works. So in seven, you know, it's a very simple formula for me because seven is really my favorite odd time signature to play in because it's it's not as fast as five that you have to get back to the to the downbeat, and nine is extended a little too much as well. That you got to think a little bit more with that one. Seven is at least for me has always been an easy one to grasp and to find the phrase, and it's really a simple one for me that because obviously the old joke is yeah well I can play in odd times one two three four five six seven one two three four right <laughs> so you know but obviously. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, three, right? It's, you know, you feel like you're falling off that ledge. But by simply turning it into a half phrase and finding the backbeat, you know, so it's one, two, three, and one, two, three, and one, two, kaboom, two, five, six, seven, one. Then it all of a sudden it becomes, oh, well, there's the backbeat. One, two, bat, three, and it just flows. Exactly. But with. The way that you play it also, you don't always subdivide it the same way all the time. And that, the, that makes it fluid, and it's, it's a great thing the way you do it, because the backbeat's still felt, but sometimes, you know, instead of making it four and three, you'll make it three and four briefly. You know, you'll, well, actually not. See, that's the thing. I, I never think in dividing up the bar that way, because that, that turns it into math to me. That turns it into a one, two, three, one, two, three, four. I never yeah. do that. And that's the, that's the philosophy that I've never agreed with by, by simply dividing it up into a certain array of numbers, like one, two, one, two, one, two, three, or one, two, one, two, three, one, two. It, it, becomes, a, it becomes a really weird sounding polka Sure, to me. I, I, and that's what I'm <laughs> saying is that you don't do that, but, what I, but what, if, if one had to analyze what you actually do do, uh, do do, uh, right. you uh, by having the backbeat where it is, the first part of it is like a four, and the second half of it is a three, and that's I mean you can't you can't get around that that's the way it is, and that's what makes it groove. But the thing is, some drummers when they play 
even the same exact phrase or notes that you play, because they accent it so rigidly, it sounds mechanical. Right. But I never find that with your playing, even though you know you're noted for your precision of playing. I've always felt that it's never, you know, it never sounds like a machine. It always sounds like a human being because you have these dynamics within the phrase that. Are well, I always, you know, for me, every groove that I've ever played has really come from singing it first. It's got to, it's got to be something that makes sense to me that I can sing and move to. Without ever picking up a drumstick, you know, so so it always starts there for me. And seven is a perfect example. And to me, the thing that creates groove and creates feel is is really three basic things. And one of them is is consistent feel, consistent placement and space between the notes. It's hard to achieve. That takes a lifetime of practicing to make that a natural ability and involving different movements of the body that create create the space necessary to make that next note fall in the right in the place that feels good. Um, that's one thing. Dynamic contrast is another, the difference between loud and soft. But that's I think that's where a lot of people stop. And a lot of it has to do with a technical thing. And that is some of the difference between playing match grip and traditional grip. And for listeners that don't know what that means, it basically means the difference between holding the right hand and the left hand the same, which is which I call the it's and it's not wrong. It's really the most natural approach to playing drums, but it's kind of the caveman approach because both limbs are doing the same thing and it's up down up down up down with both hands basically. And although it can flow, it's not the give and take caressing type of situation that traditional grip, which comes out of the marching era of holding the left hand when the snare drums were hung around the neck and angled at a point where holding the left hand the same way as the right would not be possible. So they had to devise another way of playing. And all the old jazz drummers, if you've ever seen it, anybody from Buddy Rich to Art Blakey to you know Max Roach, they all hold the drumsticks, for the most part, in a traditional setting with the left hand. Um, and that's how I play 95% of the time mostly because of the sound contrast, because it's very easy and very natural to get up on the tip of the stick, which creates a different sound. So it's, it's you know, because a lot of the times the problem with match grip is that it, the dynamic will change, but the sound will remain the same. So therefore it sounds like a machine, because machines, especially in the old days, the drum machines, yeah, you could make it softer or louder, but the sound didn't change. And it's very difficult to change the sound with match grip unless you move your body in a kind of unnatural way to get off or up on the tip of the stick. And with traditional, it becomes a natural thing as you move your hand in and the stick comes up. It automatically goes on the tip of the stick, so it creates this softer, lighter, thinner sound leading up to a heavier backbeat, which creates this constant hills and valley type of mm. approach that flows to me much more naturally than the other way of playing match group. My friend Danny Gottlieb was telling me that he had a, a drum pad set up with 10 different drum sounds depending on dynamics and he said that because of having studied with Morello his dynamic abilities were such that he could accurately get whichever sound he wanted. It was one of the few occasions where he could say that computerized music had really actually helped him assess his own abilities. Uh, did you ever do anything like that? No, that's, it's a, that's a little bit much for me. 
I like to keep it a little bit looser than that. But it's it's all in the same essence of control. Yeah. And um, I've always, you know, on my own or through different other, you know, other teachers or studying and trying to figure out things that Buddy Rich has done and all that kind of stuff. You need to develop your control to be able to do that. So, you know, all that's good and fine. But like I said, it's a little too technical for me. And although I, you know, like you said, maybe I'm known, you know, in some circles for being the technical guy or the precise guy or whatever. For me, it's always been about the feel of the music and how that's conveyed. I just happen to be a very anal guy, you know, and it's I like it to be, <laughs> I always liked it to be as as clean and popping as possible, you know. So that's what I went for, especially growing up in the day of machines, you know. It's like you're trying to emulate sometimes and replace a sequencer. Mm-hmm. So you have to be on, right. you know, in order to work. And I don't think a lot of people kind of get that sometimes, you know, that, that sometimes you you have to be able to do that you know yeah i, I think you're absolutely right and, and uh, quite a few musicians uh, have have said this nonsense about oh you know well machines have ruined the feel of a lot of music but i think they've done a lot of good in terms of developing musicians techniques to say hey you bastard i can do this and better right and i'm right. a human being and the, it's made them get their technique up to where you know you don't need the machine and not only that you can you can have the p- part played perfectly accurately and with feel well yeah i agree and i i think it's come full circle though too in a sense of that you know it's like okay you all right we've we've brought in the machines now and we've got a lot of drummers to concentrate to get you know get their technique and get good enough and concentrate on their sound enough and their control to get in the same realm of machine and okay so now we've done that and now the funny thing is is then we we, we tried to get the machines to a point to so that they sounded real now it becomes a point of, okay, wait, stop. <laughs> Why are we doing that? Mm-hmm. If now, a lot of the reason people use machines was real simple. It had everything to do with sound, not about, not about the feel so much, you know? Because there's no way that the feel of a Bernard Purdy or a, jo- a Jeff Percaro or a Vinnie Caliuto or, you know, the guys that, that are known for that ability to be able to do the pop stuff really well is ever going to be replaced by a machine. But to me, only from sitting on the other side of the console, it's a sound issue most of the time. You take the guys that, you know, the Steely Dan records. I mean, they're nuts about the sound. As far as I know, they replace most of the sounds with triggered sounds. And it's because they want that clean, precise sound that is pretty much impossible to get with with a drum set. I mean, you can't really do it without some sacrifice somewhere. There's always going to be some phasing issue. There's always going to be something that's ringing that you don't want ringing. There's going to be something going on with, you know, with 13 open microphones that that you can't replace with the sample of one instrument. It's more of a sound issue than anything else. So for me, a lot of it is um, bad engineers have a lot to do with it to me, and there's plenty of them out there. There's a lot of good ones too, but far and few between. And uh, and it's the biggest reason for me. It's not that I consider myself the greatest engineer by by no means. I really don't know what the hell I'm doing. But I know what I want to hear from the drum and I, a drum set. And I know, you know, in different in different aspects now, I've learned you know what makes the placement of things work in a mix with reverbs and sounds and 
and just getting it to sound how I want it to sound. That's my most important thing. I, you know, but I really think as far as the machine thing goes, it's coming full circle now to where okay, you're getting the guys that can play, and all of a sudden it's like, yeah, we dig the air again. We dig the human quality of it of it having the feel of a human that's not totally perfect that it slows down a little bit here or it speeds up a little bit there or it's you know but the important thing that you you, and you can't get it out of a machine you can't get the air Mm. it's not there just you can't you can't do it it's a lot more difficult to get the dynamics yeah yeah you have to go through painstaking samples i mean i mean i've gone through i've owned so many samplers and i can you know play you stuff that i've sat there and programmed and people think it's me and i say yeah well it took me you know a day to do this when i could have played it in five minutes exactly (laughs) you know let me ask you about one more thing your uh, ex employer mr korea when I, i interviewed him when he had the origin thing going and he was talking about the fact that he at that time was trying to play very, very much completely 100% acoustically. And for that reason, he put the drummer on the other side of the stage. He didn't want to hear any piano th- through the monitors. He wanted to hear it from the piano. So next in line would be the bass player and then, you know, whatever, and then the drums on the other side. He said because of that, then he could hear the drums acoustically, he could hear himself acoustically, and there was no need for electronics to enter into the equation. Now, one thing that occurred to me that I talked to him about was the fact that modern drums, the actual construction, this is something you've really been involved in heavily, I know, in in the design of drums. Modern drums, they're much, much louder. So as a result, got to deal with the drums first. Now, first of all, what you were talking about earlier, that the the drums that you were using are quieter, because you said they're not putting out as much volume. Well, are you conscious of all this, and do you ever play vintage kits, for instance, in a certain situation? Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult one, and um, just to correct you on a few things. Oh, please first, do. First of all, we're putting back the electric band together this yes. summer, so uh, so he's still going to be my employer. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, okay, fine. Um, in some aspects. Um, but uh, yeah, so we're, we are looking forward to that. There will be a, an electric band reunion tour in uh, in Europe for most of the major festivals and a new record in the fall. Mm. Uh, second of all, yeah, having to do with uh, with Chick's approach on the um, on the acoustic aspect of things. I think all of us, you know, as as artists and, and musicians, we're always trying to find the we have an idea and a concept, and that's the way we want to try to make it work at that particular time, and it's all trial and error, you know, and whether it's realistic or not is another aspect, and everybody's different, so it depends, I, I really think it's uh, depending on, on the individuals and the concept that you're trying to develop, what, as you say, makes them comfortable to be able right. to play. Now, coming around to the drum construction aspect, um, no, I don't, I don't know exactly when drum construction changed. Um, I know that a lot of it had to do, yeah, with the drum shells uh, becoming thinner and the, uh, also the drum heads becoming thinner. Um, back in the 30s and 40s, it was, you know, very thick shells and calf heads for the calf most heads. point. And that uh, really doesn't produce a whole lot of sound. Uh, it's very soft, but you know, even Buddy Rich, to exemplify your your example, you know, eventually got into playing you know five ply Slingerland drums that were louder than hell, you know, um, in just about every situation. 
Tony Williams is another example. It didn't matter if he was playing, you know, trio or whatever it was. I mean, it was rock and roll jazz, you mm -hmm. know, with really loud Gretsch drums with the big black dot controlled sound drum heads, you know. So like I said, I think it's up to the individual. When, when you're leading your own ship, you've got your idea of how you want it to work, and it's really up to you know everybody else to try to conform to that because that's the whole concept of leading your own right. band is to present it and do it your way so it's one of the biggest reasons I'm doing it it's not to get rich let me tell you sure. you know it's uh, it's because it's it's basically you get to a point where you want to you want to try to present it your way you know you've got the idea of how you'd like to do that so I completely understand Chick's philosophy and he and I have had many discussions about it because when he has tried to to make that work when we play together basically the whole concept of no monitors uh, is impossible for me it's not possible um, the drum sets that I use I'm I've been a, an endorser of Yamaha drums for 18 or 19 years now they don't make a drum that's a vintage drum or that is soft <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> exist uh, when I play acoustic trio, I play very small drums. Okay. Um, I'll use a 16-inch bass drum. I use what they call what the, it's a little hip gig kit, is what it's called, and it's yeah, I know uh, it, it is actually quieter. And I actually used it on the, the this new Rendezvous record that that's coming out um, uh, that we recorded live in New York at the Blue Note last year. But when you're dealing with acoustic piano and you're you're trying to play progressive aggressive bebop or jazz or especially when it can get into latin and and you're not playing in let's say a traditional sense of how they played in the 40s or you right. know that style when it's a little bit more uh aggressive and bombastic let's let's put it that way can be where the dynamic range will get to that point it almost doesn't work with an acoustic piano it's it's really difficult for me to feel like I'm in the same dynamic ballpark of of acceptability sure. with an acoustic piano. At the same time, you do say, I mean, you just said that you, you like, for instance, for a certain gig, you might choose to use. Oh yeah, when I when I do acoustic piano gigs, I use different drums, I use different cymbals than I'm using at Ronnie's with my group right now. Sure. For for sure. Yeah. Yeah, have to. It doesn't because yeah. it doesn't work. Um, however, uh, like I said, the the whole concept of Chick wanting to hear the piano and hearing everything else on the stage is a cool concept for him, but when you're talking about the drummer trying to adapt to the same concept and hear the acoustic piano by itself, uh, no, no. So it's not impossible. Yeah. And I'm sure the, the drummer in that band had, had monitors. For a well. time, I heard he didn't. Oh, he didn't? And, okay. and he didn't, you know, because Chick was okay. really trying to do the acoustic thing yeah. and, not, and not have any monitors anywhere, which, you know, for me, I just can't make that work because sure. I need to hear what he's doing, and yes. I, I want to hear what he's doing, and I don't want to guess. Otherwise, I'd have to play brushes all night. Do you use yeah. in-ear monitors? I do in, in my situation, in, uh, with my band, in louder situations where, where the style of music that we're playing you know, can, can go from rock to right. jazz to sambas to you know, right. Latin to, to anything within one song. Uh, so there's a real broad dynamic range. Yeah, I use in-ear monitors to, for two reasons. One is, uh, yeah, I've got everybody in the band going through my my mixer that I use um, that all the drum mics are going through there as well so basically the sound 
in my ears is I'm my own monitor man, so I don't have to worry about monitors on stage, and so 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 the sound doesn't get out of hand with that. If I need more saxophone, I turn them up myself on the mic on the fader, you know. And also, it prote- it's a it's well. A that's the other device. that's the other reason. It's 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 ear protection as well because you know you're stuffing these foam things in your ears that are that are earplugs basically. Mm-hmm. So the actual sound of sitting over the drums is cut in half pretty much of of the acoustic sound. So it's saving my ears at the same time that that the sound that I'm hearing is very pleasing. The biggest aspect is that I hear everybody in time as to what they're doing and that became an issue with Chick and I to bring it to go back to that for a second because the distance aspect of him hearing me from across the stage it was enough to affect the time. Ah. It was okay. a, it was enough to where I was hearing him Late. Well, no, I was hearing him where he was putting it, but if I'd play with that, he was hearing me behind. Uh, okay. So it became a kind of a funny game we got into for a while trying to figure that one out. But but there was enough, you know, delay because we had enough space in the stage, and it just, you know, it, it was. But obviously, kind of, with with the electric band, you're not going to have that problem because. No, I'll I'll use the same system that I use now with my right, with so my rig. I mean, he's got to use monitors because he's playing. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't. I don't know if he does for the drums. I. Th- I still think we try to keep the stage in that essence of the drums being not monitored. Um, you know, because I, I think the PA handles it. No, sometimes, he, sometimes he's he'll get it. He's got to use monitors for himself. Yeah, definitely. To hear his own yeah. stuff. Yeah, definitely. Right, and 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 how how big a band is that going to be? Is he is going to be the normal electric band? Yeah, it'll it'll be the in in most aspects the tour the. The musicianship will change a little bit. Uh, Patitucci can't do the tour. Um, he's going to do the record. Marienthal can make half the tour. So, you know, a guy by the name of Mike Pope is going to play bass for the summer, and, and uh, uh, Eric and Steve Davis are going to swap sax chairs. So, we're like I said, we're, we're going to be doing a new recording in the fall, which will be the, the uh, original members totally, you know. Great. And on the summer, Gambali will be doing it, and I'll be doing it. And, you know, we had a little pre-run last October that was a blast. It was just like everybody was, you know, 10 years more progressed and mature and advanced and we came back and played the old music and it was like a whole other ball game. You know, it was really a lot of fun. So not that it wasn't fun to begin with, but it was kind of, it was really cool to, to kind of take the time off from that and come back where everybody's gone through all these other musical experiences and life and all that stuff. And it was nice. It was a lot of fun. Well, it's been a lot of fun talking to you, and we've got more than enough, and, and cool. that's great. You've already done your DJing thing. There you go. And uh, good morning. Cool. Good evening, All good right. Afternoon. Cool. Fantastic. Thanks, Richard. All right.